This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. All right. We are loving Monday morning. It's Deep South Dining. I'm out. Right. Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Malcolm. And how can you not feel good after listening to that? I feel great, as they say. That was what Tony the Tiger used to say back in the 60s, Malcolm. Yes, he did. Hey, you know, I don't know if you uh, pay tribute, but yesterday was Pi Day. And uh, Pi Day uh, is a celebration that takes place on March the 14th all around the world. Celebrates one of the Greek letters, and it is a symbol used in mathematics to represent the constant, the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter, which is approximately 3.14159. Therefore, we celebrate on 3.14, March 14th. Pi Day is an annual opportunity for math enthusiasts to recite the infinite digits of pi, talk to their friends about math, and to eat pi. And I'm only capable of one of those three things. So yesterday at my house, Kara, <laughs> Kara and granddaughter Wren made a magnificent and beautiful lemon-lime pie with a ginger snap crust. And man, was it good. And it's on cooking and coping if you want to see a photo of it. Wow. Wow. I can't top that, Malcolm. For pie day, I made a chess pie, which is way more simple than that. But I I think it's important, especially for those of us who didn't do very well in math, to celebrate pie day our way. Yes. Yes, indeed. And by eating a pie, that is the greatest contribution that I feel I can make. You know, Carol, last week we talked to Josh Phelps with the World Central Kitchen about how they are here in Jackson helping with the water crisis. I think we have an update, right? Yeah, uh, they they are still on site. Uh, Yesterday they were at Forest Hill passing out water and feeding families, and they are working with a bunch of local restaurants who have really stepped up to the plate, uh, Manship, our friend Chef Nick Wallace, Barrel House, and a bunch of others are helping uh, feed people who have, have had hard times with both water and food during this crisis. And I, I think you can follow them at the hashtag Chefs for Mississippi, and, and they will tell you where they will be next, uh, and you can follow the good work of the World Central Kitchen and with local Jackson restaurateurs and chefs. And we appreciate that work. You know, it's been a a busy month. And March, as you know, Carol, is Women's History Month. And we are highlighting some of the extraordinary women in the culinary arts. And today we want to shine the light on a true culinary icon, Edna Lewis. Well, as you have known for some time, Edna Lewis is my heroine of cookbook authors and just influential people. Um, 
sadly, she passed away a few years ago, but some people call her the Julia Child of Southern cooking. Uh, and her her influence is simply everywhere. She was born in the early part of the 20th century and actually grew up in Freetown, Virginia, which was a, uh, a small community founded by her grandparents and a few others uh, after the Civil War. Uh, her, her, grand, her grandfather was a slave, and so they founded this community where she grew up, and she took all of, all of the lessons she learned there to New York and became one of the most important chefs and women chefs. She really introduced the world to the refinement of Southern cooking that we were more than, you know, than just grits and, and fried chicken. Um, Scott Peacock was one of the chefs that she so greatly influenced. They had a, a multi-year relationship. Uh, she lived with him at the end of her life. They met when Scott was in his 20s and she was 76. And they collaborated on one of the most important cookbooks on Southern food. It, it's called The Gift of Southern Cooking. Anyway, it, she deserves our honor and our praise. And I'm so thrilled that we'll be able to talk to Scott Peacock about her life today. Great. So, so, so far this month, we've highlighted uh, Julia Reed, uh, Greenville native. Um, last week, we highlighted Cat Cora, a Jackson native. And this time uh, today, we will highlight in the third segment of our show, we will have a 20-minute interview segment from a long, long free-form conversation that Carol and I had with Scott Peacock a few days ago, and, and we're going to be using that interview throughout multiple shows to highlight not only Scott's career, but the influence of Edna Lewis uh, on Scott and his great work uh, that continues to this day. Malcolm and Java, I just want to hear from both of y'all if you felt like I did about the time that we spent with Scott Peacock. It was the highlight of my week. It was a beautiful interview. Yes, I, I had a wonderful time. Uh, you know, that's the first time I've really talked to Scott. And uh, I learned a lot and I was inspired and uh, very impressed uh, with his breadth of knowledge and his, uh, you know, his willingness to share. He was just a terrific interview and I can't wait to meet him in person. Yeah, I will echo the same thing Malcolm said, and I'm pretty sure all of us uh, learned a lot on the interview. One thing that I will highlight, and you will kind of hear in in the interview, is that he went from trying to be, quote unquote, fancy, you know, as a fancy French chef that a lot of people, you know, you think of cooking and fancy cooking, maybe French cooking, Italian cooking. But he actually talked about how getting beginning to learn that the southern cooking can be just as elevated you know as all these other quote-unquote fancy uh forms of cooking so that was one highlight that i really i really enjoyed him uh speaking about you know he he talks about in in the interview how he sort of as a young person he rejected southern food as ordinary and common and he wanted to as you say java he wanted to learn French cooking from Julia Child, and he wanted to to go in a different direction until 
he met Edna Lewis. And then he he talks about the renaissance of his renewed interest in his native cuisine and southern cooking and southern food ways. Well, you know, I've read the story that how he met Miss Lewis was she was coming to Atlanta to cook for some big dinner, uh, you know, one of these multi-hundred person dinners. And she was a featured chef and Scott was, I believe, like 24. And they sent him to the train station to pick her up. And she gets off the train with this big black suitcase <laughs> and it was full of pie dough. She knew Speaking she had, of pie day. Yeah, she, she knew she had to make a hundred pies for this dinner and Scott was to be her assistant. So she made the dough and carried it on the train from New York. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to take a little break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about St. Patrick's Day and uh, things like corned beef and cabbage and Irish stew and a trip that Carol and I took to Ireland back in 2007. So we will talk about what's going on around Hal St. Patty's Parade and Celebration and maybe what you're cooking in your home on St. Patrick's Day, which is March 17. But when we do, we'll come back and we will also take your calls. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Welcome back to Deep South Dining. Malcolm White here with Carol Puckett. And Carol, this is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. How are you this morning? I am good, and indeed it is. Uh, and I got a couple of questions for you. Lay it on me. March 17th is a big day around here. And yes. um, it's St. Patrick's Day. And I know that our famous, your famous St. Patty's Day parade has been canceled because of the COVID. But uh, tell us what's going on with the with the parade time and what y'all are doing to fill that gap? Well, we will not have the traditional parade. So the parade as we know it will, is on pause uh, again this year for the second year, but we will, uh, we have full uh, intentions to have the parade in 2022. Uh, but since we are unable to have the parade uh, in the streets of Jackson uh, this year, we're going to have uh, a St. Patrick's celebration over in the private parking lot of Martin's downtown across the street from Howl and Mouse. So we'll have crawfish and music. We got the Molly Ring walls. We got Mustache the band. We've got uh, several brass bands and some local entertainers. So there'll be from one o'clock until 8 p.m., there will be an outdoor uh, mask required social distancing uh, event. Uh, with Crawfish Boil and, uh, and music sponsored by Capital City Beverages and uh, Southern Beverage Company. And that will be one piece. And then that's on Saturday the 27th when we would historically have the parade. But the night before, on Friday the 26th, there will be a 30-minute TV special on WJTV uh, looking back at the history of the parade and talking about the significance of the parade 
in Jackson. So those two pieces uh, will be what we present this year. Both will have fundraising components for Children's of Mississippi, previously known as Blair E. Batson Hospital for Children. Uh, so what we call the Saturday night is uh, St. Patty's Remix. And then on Friday, as I said, at 6.30 p.m. on WJTV, we will have a 30-minute special about the parade. Wow. So what are you cooking for <clears throat> St. Patrick's Day? Got well, you corn, know, beef and cabbage? I love corned beef and cabbage, and my brother always prepared that for the lunch special at Hallamow's on true St. Patrick's Day. Um, but what I love more than the corned beef and cabbage was my brother's Irish stew, which he made with lamb. And, yep. and he looked every year, he, he, he made sure he procured his lamb meat, got his vegetables ready, prepared his Irish stew. And the highlight of, of my month and, and sometimes my year was going uh, into the restaurant and having a giant bowl of, of Hal's Irish stew with a big old chunk of cornbread. What about you? Well, that was one of my favorite things, too. And what I loved about uh, Hal's Irish stew, he kind of took it up a notch because the traditional Irish stew was made with mutton. And right. his just had, you know, just such a beautiful taste. And I think, you know, he used carrots in his Irish stew, yeah. which is, you know, which is something they do like in County Cork and a certain part of Ireland. In certain parts, they don't use the carrots at all. But uh, will they be having that this week at, at Hallamow's? That's a great question. I will uh, check on that. Um, I hope so. I um uh... But I hope everybody celebrates St. Patrick's Day on March 17. And Carol, you know, you and I took a trip in 2007 to Ireland and experienced the Irish cuisine in what was at that time a real uh, renaissance in Ireland. There was a huge amount of money flowing in Ireland. There was a lot of uh, construction going on and their traditional foodways uh, were beginning to be influenced by the wealth and the money and the travelers that were coming there. Yes, and Malcolm, I just have to say that our first experience with Irish food, when we landed, the morning after we landed, was the Irish breakfast. Do you remember coming, uh, you know, coming down in the bed and breakfast with our friends? Esther Scott Key and Donnie Bruce Browning and, and we, you know, sit at this table and are confronted after all that travel and all that jet lag with Irish breakfast, which is, <laughs> which is always, they have rashers and bangers, which is bacon and sausage. They have black pudding, which is cooked pork blood suet. Um, fried eggs, toast, fried tomatoes, and canned beans. It's a lot to look at at that time of morning. But yeah, we it was a bit Irish breakfast. If we came to love the Irish breakfast, it took a few days before the jet lag uh, dissipated, and we were able to really take on the traditional Irish breakfast. But the Irish are very very proud of this breakfast and they serve it everywhere and they promote it 
and it's a big, big deal. Yes, but anyway, we had a great trip. We learned a lot, and I would encourage anybody who's interested to get on a plane when you can, when it's safe, and, and go to Ireland uh, and see what's cooking. We got a caller on the phone right now. Uh, Scott Beretta's calling in. Scott was in Bentonia yesterday for a Grammy celebration, and he posted uh, a great photograph of what he ate. Scott, <laughs> tell us a little bit about your day yesterday. Good morning, Scott. All right. Good morning to you all. I'm eating some Irish breakfast here in uh, Greenwood. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Scott, so, Scott, let yeah. me say this. Let me before you say. Scott Barrett is a a, a a blues enthusiast. He's a scholar. Uh, he he teacher he teaches at Ole Miss at the university. Uh, he serves as one of the state's uh, blues scholars on the blues trail. He's a great friend, and he never misses a party where blues is being presented or a good play to catfish. So welcome, Scott Beretta. Oh, thanks for calling. Thanks for letting me call in today. Yeah, yeah so, man, uh, we're glad here. Yeah, so uh, what what did I eat? Well, I missed out on uh, yesterday, let's just say, that at the Blue Front Cafe, you know, Jimmy Duck Holmes was uh, uh, nominated for a Grammy in the uh, uh, traditional blues category, along with uh, Bobby Rush and uh, uh, Robert Cray and a couple other people. And uh, he, um, in recent years, there's been some people helping Jimmy set up a lot more events. Of course, he's had his Bentonia Blues Festival since the early, 2000, early 70s, on and off. But uh, it's become a big event. But he's having these uh, parties more and more often throughout the year. And yesterday, some friends of his helped set up a uh, party for the Grammys. And uh, Jimmy apparently was on, I didn't, I was in the car and there, but he was apparently on the Grammys broadcast. So you all can watch the big ones on TV, but if you're a fan of like liner notes or album design or, or folk music or blues music, like I am, you have to watch on the computer at like, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon. So the smaller awards are, are broadcast live and they, they broadcast that performance live at the Blue Front, uh, recorded live at the Blue Front on the Grammys. And But if you went to Bentonia, you could see uh, uh, Jimmy playing live during the Grammy broadcast. And he actually had a lineup beginning at 1 p.m. Uh, going till I don't know, I left around 8 last night. It was still going. Uh, but when they uh, started out, they had a massive amount of uh, crawfish and free barbecue. And uh, what I ended up having, I was I was hanging out with uh, some folks, and uh, there was a big crowd of people that uh, were cooking up a big pot, and I was uh, wondering what was in it. And the picture, I think that you're maybe I'm not sure which picture you're referring to, the catfish picture, or I also posted a picture of a woman that was cooking a big pot, and she had neck bones and pig snouts and. Uh, pig's feet in this cauldron. I don't know how many, 60 gallons or something. And I was waiting on that, but uh, she seemed to have been cooking it for about three or four hours. So I went to a, uh, a around the corner from Jimmy, I went and got some, a catfish plate. And it was a woman who's has had the, uh, well, she's quite young, but her mother has had the restaurant for a long time. But the, the restaurant's actually housed in a couple storage buildings, like the kind you buy by the side of the road. Because as right. I was leaving, I noticed that the uh, 
the door to the restaurant was about five feet wide. <laughs> I was like, that's the biggest door I've ever seen. She said, oh, you can drive a tractor through it. <laughs> but it was, uh, there was, <laughs> then I then I looked at it, and I noticed that the, the restaurant was actually constructed of those uh, three, uh, uh, three of those kind of storage facilities. But it was a uh, young woman named Rhonda, um, who's from Yazoo City, and her mother had the place for years until, um, a tree fell on it, and uh, she's now operating it. If you if you're at if you're looking at the blue front, and you go to the left, you go there's there's a uh, a joint where a bar with uh, pool tables that uh, sell a couple things, and then you walk down a little bit, and she's got a couple handmade signs. But her name's Rhonda, and um, she took the place over for her mother from her mother, and meanwhile her mother um, has done what we see a lot of people doing in the Delta, which is selling plate lunches out of their house, right? So uh, there's a number of kind of secret restaurants out there. But uh, Jimmy Duck Homes uh, inside the Blue Front, you know, there's a lot of, if, if you were desperate for lunch, you could uh, get some uh, Vienna sausages, as they say down here, or some uh, <laughs> potato chips or uh, uh, cheese crackers. I started off the day with some cheese crackers, but that wasn't uh, that wasn't sufficient. <laughs> well, did you ever get any of the uh, pig ear and uh, snout cauldron? Uh, snout I was standing around pretty obviously and smiling, but I think there was a. After they were cooking for <laughs> for five hours, I think there seemed to be kind of a queue. And uh, actually, by that point, I had already kind of filled up on catfish and, and fries. But I would have definitely uh, – I cook with neck bones all the time, so I like that. Um, I don't know about the snout so much. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, yeah I'm before, with you. I, I'll do a plate of neck bones, but I draw yeah. the line on the, the feet and the snout. Well, I'm not sure really what to eat. <laughs> I'm not sure which is the edible part or not. I guess all of it. Um, if you can, Scott, talking about pig parts, I know you're living in Greenwood right now. And I remember a few years ago when I was working with Viking Range and we hosted the great chef Jacques Papin in uh -huh. Greenwood. And he was absolutely blown away by the fact that at the Piggly Wiggly in Greenwood, you could get any number of pig parts from pig's feet, pig snout, oh, pig yeah, ears. Yeah. And uh, he loaded up, we got ice chests for him, you know, because those were things he could get in France, but you couldn't really get where he lives, like in Connecticut or, you know, somewhere like that. So he loaded up an ice chest with pig parts, and I'm sure there was a snout or two in there. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I usually go and get, um, if I'm making uh, greens or uh, beans or um, a number of dishes, I use the, uh, I said, the smoked, um, uh, well, usually the neck bones, uh, you know, because there's some, uh, some meat to be pulled off of them, for one. You know, then I chop it into little pieces, you know, to put in the greens or things like that. But yeah, and so he didn't buy jars, I guess. I guess you wouldn't need to pack those in ice. <laughs> no, he, he went straight. It was at the meat counter. But, uh, you know, another another thing I'd like to know that our listeners would like to know is, does Rhonda's place have a name? If anybody's you know, going to hear music in Bentonia or going to the Blue Front. I, I just, you know, looked at the photograph I took from outside of it, and... 
it was just like kind of a generic welcome, you know, something you'd buy at Walmart or something like that. And then there was a couple, uh, I, I did actually zoom in on that photograph yesterday, but uh, I couldn't see, well, she has like, like a sign that says gather here. Then there's a neon open sign. Uh, there's a blackboard with come in, we're open. Uh, another one, which another sign, let's see. Burgers, fish, turkey burger, Philly steak. No, it just uh, it doesn't seem to have a name. So, just, <laughs> so we'll we'll know where they are. They're popular. Three. They don't need a name. <laughs> yeah, yes. when, when we see three storage buildings, but um, Malcolm and Java, I think we need to put put Rhonda on our list. We will. We'll make yeah, a Rhonda. No, I'll, I'll send a picture of a picture, or Malcolm can take steal my picture if you'd like. But um, thanks. Yeah, no, it was it was it was a great day, and uh, Jimmy, uh, I, I just posted on my Facebook page, and uh, uh, that uh, Jimmy gave a talking. I don't care about no Grammy. <laughs> he talked, and then he uh, went on and told everybody that his Grammy is every all his friends showing up for him, and then he pulled out this medallion and says, "This is from somewhere famous. Where's this from?" And they said, <laughs> "Tiffany." And he goes, Tiffany, I don't care if it's Barbara. I got I, my, my my reward is you all. <laughs> so, oh, that's uh, great. He was he wasn't crying in his beer yesterday. Let's say, yeah, no, no, he's too big a man for that. Yeah, well, Scott, thanks for calling in and sharing uh, some of your experience yesterday in Bentonia at the Blue Front Cafe and the Grammy celebration for Jimmy Duck. Holmes, we appreciate it. Maybe we'll get you back on the show sometimes because I know you travel extensively and you are an enthusiastic eater. That's Scott Barretta. Uh, uh, yes, I am. <laughs> okay. One of, Thank you very one much. One of our blue scholars and a great friend uh, to Carol and I. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to hear an interview with Chef Scott Peacock. We spoke to him a few days ago about his career and moments in his life that he spent with his mentor. That's Edna Lewis. So stay tuned. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. Dining right here on MPB Think Radio. I'm Malcolm White here with Carol Puckett, and this is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor and those who stir the pot. Carol, we have a very special guest today joining us on Deep South Dining. Would you do the introductory honors, please? It would be my honor, and I would like to welcome Chef Scott Peacock to Deep South Dining this morning. Um, this has been an interview that Malcolm and Java and I have been thinking about for a while. And Scott, we're so grateful that you're here. Um, for our listeners, Scott is a native Alabamian. He's from Hartford, which is near the Florida Panhandle. And from Hartford, Alabama, he has elevated the cooking 
of his home region to the highest echelons of the culinary world. I'm talking best chef Southeast, uh, a nominee for outstanding chef of the United States. And one of my favorites in its 40th anniversary issue, Food and Wine named his fried chicken and his biscuits in the 40 best recipes ever published. Um, with Edna Lewis, he authored one of the most important, most heralded cookbooks on Southern cooking. And it's called The Gift of Southern Cooking. And I think the tagline under the book really sums up what it is. It's recipes and revelations from two great American chefs. And uh, the revelations, the writing is as beautiful as the recipes. Today, Scott makes his home in Marion, Alabama, where he writes farms, grains, and indigo, and teaches biscuit classes. So welcome, Scott. Oh my goodness, thank you so much. That, that was um, lovely. Maybe we should just stop there. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> thank you. Thank, I, I'm delighted to be here with you and there's absolutely nowhere I would rather be this morning. Well, um, Scott, I'll start by asking what led you to become a chef and one of the most renowned chefs in the country? <laughs> uh, eating, a love of eating, <laughs> an absolute love of eating um, that started very early in my life and a love of being in the kitchen with my mother and grandmothers and uh, a woman in Gertrude Moore who um, cooked for my family when I was very young. Uh, so I always found the kitchen very welcoming and very uh, mystical place and full of love and uh, wonderful flavors and occurrences and acts of transformation. And um, I, that that was it for me. And then I discovered Julia Child, of course, like many people of my generation on television after Mr. Rogers and other um, public television shows and I thought that was just incredible and was a whole other world of cooking that I uh, never imagined and um, I just I've been very lucky that I've always been drawn to something that I, that I was really interested and passionate about whether it was cooking or music or indigo or biscuits uh, and um, uh, it's not always been the easiest road but I, I do feel like it has served me well and I'm very, very grateful for it. So it was absolutely eating and a desire to know how things were done, to understand these, how these transformations occurred. Well, what was your first uh, commercial gig? When did you evolve from the home kitchen uh, to a professional <laughs> job? Yes. Um, the first professional gig, I guess, would have been, or the first one I was ever paid to cook, I believe would have been in the 80s. Um, I was a failed music student at Florida State University, where I had a very long and very unsuccessful college career. Um, <laughs> well, we have and, that in common. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, during that time, it's too long to get into probably right now, but I eventually, I became an intern in the governor's office. Uh, the governor of Florida at that time was a man named Bob Graham, who 
was about to uh, run for the Senate. Anyway, I was invited to a party as, an, as a gubernatorial intern. I was invited to a party and I met the chef of the governor's mansion and the mansion manager and things led to me being at a fundraising party where some cooks didn't show up in the kitchen and they sent for me because they were utterly desperate and I helped for the evening and loved it and they thought that I did okay and they knew I had an interest in, in eating and cooking um, and so they began to hire me to do freelance parties and little gigs and they were tremendous mentors just tremendous mentors and the mansion manager who was who was as important and influential in my life as the chef um, was a very knowledgeable about food and she's deceased her name was Nellis Schomburger uh, but the chef was uh, went on to quite a bit of uh, notoriety uh, and his name was Art Smith and he was Oprah Winfrey's chef for a solid 10 years I think and has several restaurants oh we know Art yeah, yeah, so I, I could not have fallen into a better situation to have such mentors. And then they helped me get a, um, they suggested that I get a job in a restaurant. And I did in, in Tallahassee. It's a long gone, very small, very, it's very, very fancy, especially for the time, French restaurant called the Gold Pheasant. And um, that took some convincing because um, I remember the chef said to me, uh, when he finally gave me an interview, said, you know, Scott, cooking in a restaurant is not like making a cake at home. You don't get to put it in the oven and go watch TV. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was that was how great the impression was I made on him. But he was wonderful and a great mentor. And from there, um, the phone would just ring. And I one day got a phone call to go and cook on a hunting plantation in South Georgia, very unexpectedly. And from there, I was got a phone call asking if I'd like to be the chef of the governor of Georgia and, um, you know, to Atlanta and was cooking for um, the governor of Georgia, two of them for uh, almost the next four years, I think. And that got me to Atlanta. So it was kind of a long, long answer to, to your question. Oh, a little overboard, I think. Yeah. Ah. Well, a couple, a couple of comments there. It sounds that you learned French cooking about both from Julia Child and the Golden Pheasant. And I know you took that style of cooking with you to you know, the governor's mansion. You know, 24 is pretty young to, to run a governor's mansion kitchen. I, I can't even imagine what that was like. I was so utterly you, unqualified, you were, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But you were known, you were known for, for French cooking. So how did you make the leap uh, to- Well, I was very interested in that your because passion. I was very interested in being um, quote unquote fancy or quote unquote real, you know? So I, I didn't, you know, I was young. And even though I was 24, I was the oldest I'd ever been, but I was quite young mm -hmm. and I had, um, you know, I was aspiring to something I'd seen on television and was reading about in magazines and a version that I thought was um, uh, more impressive and more acceptable than being from Hartford, Alabama. So in Southern food, it's important to point out that at that time, that Southern food was not regarded as cuisine. Uh, it was not the darling uh, of the food media that has become now. It was not chic. It was about as uncool as you could possibly get and it was 
you know, really uh, laced with stereotypes and misconceptions. Um, so I wasn't interested in Southern food or Southern cooking at all. <laughs> I did, I, however, I did find myself because I was at a hunting plantation and at the governor's mansion in Georgia, you know, focusing on place. Place was important to me and seemed, you know, the appropriateness of the food you served in a particular place and it would speak of the place. But as far as, um, you know, pursuing it as a as a cuisine career was not there. And that all happened uh, completely because I met Edna Lewis while I was at the governor's mansion. She'd come to Atlanta for an event and I had a vague knowledge of who she was through Art and Nella in Tallahassee, who had, as I said, were tremendous mentors and made sure that I knew about the right cooks and the right books and uh, just really guided me so greatly. Uh, so I met her, but even then I, I was very taken with her and I, I was very aware of something um, of a resonance in, within me in response to meeting her, but she was completely about Southern cooking and food. And that caused me a great deal of distress because that I was headed to Italy, you know, that's where I wanted to go. That's where everybody wanted to go right. uh, to be one of the cool kids. And um you know, that was a long, slow process. And suddenly I had what really was an epiphany, uh, not to be too dramatic. It would be hard to be too dramatic where suddenly I just saw Southern cooking and Southern food in a completely different light. Um, it was just a revelation. And um, I never looked back. I mean, I really devoted, and I knew in that moment that I was devoting my career and my life um, as it were. To, to pursuing that and learning about it and being a practitioner of it. Uh, and also realized that like how I knew absolutely nothing about Southern cooking at all, but well, not much. And I was real dismissive of, even though I loved the food that my mother and grandmothers made, I was sort of dismissive of it because it was familiar to me. Right. Uh, for our listeners who may not have the joy of knowing about uh, Miss Lewis, who is truly an icon of Southern cooking, and you know you are the keeper of her culinary flame now. Tell tell us a little bit about her life and about her significance to Southern food in America, and, and her significance to American cooking. Yes, oh boy, we could go on for days there, but. Um, let's start in Freetown, Virginia. Let's do that. That's what I would say. She was born in 1916. She was African-American. She was um, the granddaughter of enslaved individuals who, uh, after emancipation, after the end of the Civil War, uh, founded a community called Freetown. It was a little settlement of eight families uh, in Virginia, about 40 miles from Charlottesville. And she was raised there, uh, part of a large family. She moved to New York City when she was 15 or 16, depending on the, on the day you were told the story, um, but at a very young age. And she, she, she was a deeply gifted, deeply sensitive person and very artistic. Um, she fell into a, a wonderful group of young people who were very politically progressive. Um, 
she was campaigning before she was old enough to vote. Uh, and this group of young people, they would cook for each other on the weekends and her cooking quickly became the standout. And eventually she had a friend named Johnny Nicholson who was a window dresser and designer and had a little antique shop. And at one of these parties, he said, Edna, I'm gonna open a restaurant and you're gonna be the chef. And he did, and she was. And he and Carl Bissinger, who's a photographer and Miss Lewis's best friend at the time, they opened this restaurant called Cafe Nicholson, this little 10 table restaurant in Midtown Manhattan. And she was an equal partner which is quite remarkable in 1948 for a woman, uh, especially a woman of color. And it became an instant sensation, uh, just an instant sensation. Uh, Tennessee Williams lived across the street and uh, Streetcar Named Desire was playing on Broadway at the time, but everyone came from Salvador Dali to William Faulkner and Truman Capote and Carson McCullers and Greta Garbo and on and on and on. And it just became the, um, the toast of the town for a period. Uh, and she left there. To, um, she eventually was catering and cooking. She left the restaurant after four years and did a number of different things. She was a very gifted seamstress, um, among other gifts. Um, but she fell in the snow and broke her leg. And out of boredom in the hospital, which was a very long stay, she started writing down recipes. And those eventually became her first cookbook called the Edna Lewis Cookbook. And from there, she met Judith Jones, um, who was Julia Child's editor and quite a legend herself. And she began telling her the stories about growing up in Freetown and began writing them down longhand on yellow legal pads. And that grew into really her masterpiece, The, um, the Taste of Country Cooking, which is about a year in Freetown, Virginia, when she was a child. And the recipes, the traditions, the rituals, the uh, natural rhythms of the natural world. And it, it's just exquisite. And is one of the earliest cookbooks where food, uh, cookbook is a memoir also. And it's quite exquisite. And she was ahead of her time. I mean, she understood the value and importance of Southern cooking um, in terms of its quality, but also cultural significance. And she was unapologetic about it at a time uh, when everybody else was still apologizing, liked it, but was apologizing. She was very, very much ahead of her time. And then I was very lucky uh, to meet her in the 80s and uh, a friendship and um, we became colleagues and friends. Well, I know uh, you not only became colleagues and friends, she actually lived with you in the last six years of her life and died when, what, was she 90 around? She was two months to the day shy of being 90 years old, yes. And during that time is when you wrote The Gift of Southern Cooking together or had that been previous? Yeah, um, The Gift of Southern Cooking, when she turned 80, we had this huge ambitious fat that was cooked all without electricity it was all cooked in a hard thrown pits and it went on all day long and Judith Jones came for that and I had created a little commemorative book for that uh and she came up that night after the party and said the two of you should write a book together and that's what became the gift of southern cooking so that started Oh gosh, it took a long time. It took so much, just like my college career, it took so much longer. Fortunately, it ended successfully. 
Um, but it took, uh, you know, from that night to the day it was published, it was seven years and one day, I think. Um, so we had, that was published in 2003 and we were living together by then and uh, she died in 2006. If you just join us, our guest today is Scott Peacock. He's a chef and a writer uh, and he's well known uh, in the Southern food circuit. Uh, though he did start early in his cooking career being uh, tantalized by French and Italian and European cooking. He found his way back to his own roots, uh, which began in Alabama. Scott, in, in writing about Miss Lewis, she, um, I've made a list of words that you use, and you talk about her sense of wonder, uh, her yes. powers of observation, her sophistication, which you know, really came through in her, her food, and her girlish innocence. And I love, I love that thinking about at 89 years old or, or you know, to have a sense of wonder about the world and your food. And you write about her looking at the moon. But what was it like to cook with her? Oh, it was wonderful. And it was very quiet. It was both of us. We were both very, very focused on what we were doing. Um, we would often be cooking quite side by side or uh, working on the same thing or together, or we would be cooking different, you know, dishes at the same time together. Um, there would sometimes be light chatter, but I would say that it was permeated by that sense of wonder and, and concentration, like deep, deep concentration, which we both had. Cause I think we both, one of the things that I think connected us so much was this, this deep desire to find the best way to do something or do the very, very, very best that we could uh, when we were cooking. And it was, it was very rarely did she ever say, like she, she just wasn't the person who would have ever said, I'm gonna teach you how to do this. Sometimes I would ask her to teach me how to do something or show me how to do something like turtle soup, for example, was the very first thing I ever asked her if she would teach me how to make. Um, but she she wasn't like that. It was never this, uh, I'm the teacher, you're the student. Uh, even though it wasn't her equal, she treated me as if I was. And so we would be cooking and occasionally like tasting or she would, you know, like, what are you working on now sort of thing. Uh, and then just deep wonder and then tasting and evaluating together like what was good about something what could have been better or where something was leading so there was also a great openness to it i would say that um and by that i mean that we were we were cooking we had a focus and a goal but we were also very open to it revealing something that we weren't expecting so it was very much in service to the act of cooking itself rather than trying to inflict our will upon ingredients, if that makes sense. Um, and, and delight, I would say absolute delight. I mean, a seriousness. That was the thing about her was that mix of all those things that you just read off. Um, your research is quite good. <laughs> I'm impressed. And <laughs> It's that it was this, she was this mix of wisdom, this, this majestic presence, um, 
who was very, um, you know, she lived in New York for most of her life. So she had a lot of savvy. Uh, but there was also that girlish innocence. And there was that, you know, even in the last weeks of her life, gasping at seeing a beautiful moon, like she had never seen the moon before. Um, that's, that's, what the, that's one of the things I prize the most about her and ex- learning from her was just the way that she lived, the way that she approached things, that she didn't become jaded, which doesn't, isn't to say that she was Pollyanna either, because she was not. She did not suffer fools gladly. Um, <laughs> you know, she was generous, but she didn't take, you know, she did not suffer fools gladly. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, yeah. And that is Chef Scott Peacock, conversation recorded earlier in the week. Scott was talking to us about his career and his long friendship and collaboration with Edna Lewis, who we are highlighting this month on this day uh, for Women's History Month. Thanks, Malcolm. Um, If there are any two cookbooks on Southern cooking that should be in your library, I recommend The Taste of Country Cooking by Edna Lewis and The Gift of Southern Cooking by Scott Peacock and Edna Lewis. They are just must-haves. Yeah. Well, we were really happy to get Scott to join us, and we appreciate uh, him doing that and sharing, my gosh, his, his long career and his time with our Women's History Month choice today, and that is Edna Lewis. Deep South Dining is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting's Think Radio. We are funded by generous contributions from listeners like you. Our show is produced by the one and only Java Chapman. For my co-host, Carol Puckett, and our guest today, Scott Peacock, I'm Malcolm White. Stay tuned now for Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey, followed by Southern Remedy at 11. And join us each Monday right here at 9 o'clock for Deep South Dining, heard only on MPB Think Radio.